My name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you are listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Michael Mann. Specifically, we're talking about the digital man. Yes, that's right. Michael Mann, collateral onwards. Oh, even though he did use a little bit of digital video when he shot Elite. And I think he used a little bit of celluloid when he shot Miami Vice as well, didn't he? Oh, he did on collateral. Okay. Where the opening daylight scenes and one scene indoors are shot on film, and then almost all of the rest is shot on digital video. Well, I think we can all agree that when he wants to make a normal-looking movie, and we're putting normal in quotes, Michael Mann can make an exceptionally good-looking normal looking movie Mm -hmm. you know thief manhunter heat the insider exceptionally imaginative movies that are well-crafted visual experiences he's a guy just through being an executive producer on the tv series miami vice and the films that you just mentioned kind of defined an 80s look like you look at manhunter you look Mm -hmm. at thief that is what people imagine the ultimate version of the 80s to look like Like slick Mm -hmm. polished yeah and then in the 2000s he switched from shooting on 35 millimeter film to digital and obviously a lot of people did in the 2000s as well but it got strange with michael mann yeah because he was using the digital cameras in a way that people weren't exactly like most people when you pick up a digital camera you're using it as a cost thing you want to save money and it's not because you're looking for a particular aesthetic in fact the selling point of digital is in film at least is that this is a lot cheaper than than 35 millimeter celluloid and it looks just as good or almost as good they say lying straight to your face (laughs) well the the point is it's supposed to look close enough that regular audiences are not going to revolt and And then you look at Collateral, but especially Miami Vice, Public Enemies, and Black Hat. The images are smeary and pixely and oddly lit. There's grain where there didn't used to be. Yeah, I don't think it's pixely that you're looking at. What you're looking at is mostly grain, specifically digital grain. You're looking at a lot of weird motion smoothing. Yeah, so you know what happens through that is you're lowering the shutter. Usually when you shoot with a film camera, your shutter is set at double whatever your frame rate is. So if you're shooting at 25, you shoot a shutter of 50. That's 25 frames per second. Yeah, sorry, 24 frames per second. It's 23. Nine seven eight eight six. You know, someone once said that cinema is truth. Twenty four frames yes. per second. Luc Moulet. And so, when you talk about like lowering the shutter, you get more light because the shutter is open longer. But what happens when you do that is that you get blurriness. So man is sacrificing the kind of crispness you associate with 24 frames per second to get more light on the picture. A lot more too. Backgrounds that used to be out of focus are now alarmingly sharp. Light sources that were once diffuse now appear blown out and kind of kind of shockingly bright. I can put on my technical hat for most of this episode. Please. And the reason that you get everything in focus most of the time on digital images, like, you know why your phone, everything is in focus? is because the sensor is very small mm. and that, that it's just kind of taking it all in and it's like, all right, all this is in focus. Now, when people talk about doing a cinematic image, what they mean is that their depths of field, that some stuff is out of focus, some of it is not. So people, when you talk about phones, they're like, it doesn't do a cinematic image. 
image. What's funny is that if you go all the way back to a little film called Citizen Kane, ah, yes. where Greg Tolan and Orson Welles were doing, trying to do the most, was to get everything in focus. Like, that's what they absolutely wanted to do. And then and now, it looks strange. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the way that you would do that is like you blast light on it because then you can, you know, you have a really high aperture and then everything is in focus. And man, like, especially in like all these movies set during the night, you get Basically what you see in your day-to-day life if you would walk outside and you kind of see the nighttime. There are also in these later movies many scenes, particularly action scenes, that are shot with very small and efficient handheld cameras to give a sort of sense of immediacy. Mm -hmm. Obviously there's a great sense of immediacy in that great bank robbing scene in Heat. But it's very controlled. It's a controlled, a, a polished image. Whereas in something like Miami Vice, the firefights that are happening, you're supposed to feel like you're really in the middle of it. Now, I hear that a lot when people say, oh, the cameras are so small, you can get angles that you can't get. If you look at behind the scenes footage on most of these movies, the cameras are huge, mm-hmm. like the old digital cameras that you're using around the Miami Vice time. On Public Enemies, he did start to transfer on like a little Sony kind of handheld one. But it's so funny that the image that you see in most of the movies that we're going to be talking about today you can literally get out of your phone now if you went outside and filmed at nighttime and yet would you well the thing is all about context right mm-hmm. and the fact and we're going to keep saying this that all the movies that we're talking about like the fact that he's shooting them on digital completely changes the vibe of what they are which is remarkable because so much has remained consistent in his late career with his early career you know he's still interested in the oft murky line between cop and criminal even if they're criminals his characters are still men of work mm-hmm. they're, they're good at their job the films are very process oriented some might say to a fault I wouldn't say that, Mm. but they're like full of like techno babble and jargon and you don't need to follow every single little bit of it. In addition, the films are still about how these, you know, men of work and their workaholism affects the people around them affects their loved ones and he continues to make action movies that are the sorts of movies that critics would use the word existential Mm. around you know the characters are defined and doomed by their occupations and there's a sense that they're looking for some kind of an exit that will never come and i think that you know that's the attraction of these movies is you see people doing their job well and there's a thrill being able to see that like mechanically going through the process was it something like jean-pierre melville would do all the time in his movie and you hear tons of people are inspired by that ethos, whether it be Michael Mann or even somebody like John Woo. And yet, certain things have changed. Like in Miami Vice or Black Hat, the characters are more and more minimalist, you know? In the first one, we're going to talk about Collateral. It is the one that feels most like a normal movie. Mm, absolutely. Uh, would you agree? Because yeah. like Jamie Foxx gets a meet cute. It, it has a real kind of traditional three act story and the characters are introduced in a way that like our introductions, you know, whereas Miami Vice starts in media res and you kind of pick up on the characters based on the characters are very depends terse. on what version of Miami Vice right. that you watch. But we'll get to that soon. We should mention if you're not familiar with Michael Mann, one of his most infamous traits is he is always tinkering with his movies after they're done releasing director's cut releasing director's director's cuts like he's never quite happy because he is a perfectionist when it comes to these things i'll just say i've seen both versions of miami vice like separated by years Mm. the impacts to me of the director's cut is like similar Mm. like like well the big change on the director's cut is like a music cue plays during the movie instead of the end credits and it doesn't start in media res in the director's cut version and yet in my opinion which i just watched it's still 
still sort of does. Mm. Like, I don't know. You probably watch a theatrical cut. Unless you, you pop the Blu-ray out and you watch it. I, I popped the Blu-ray out. Oh, yeah, you yeah, did? Yeah, yeah. Then you I watched did. the director's cut. That starts with like a boat race at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I want to talk about Collateral because when this movie came out, I loved this movie. I loved it so much. Like I saw it in theaters. I must have been on all the movie websites. We can't forget them. Ain't it cool news? Chud. And we had Michael Mann Collateral Fever. Mm -hmm. I don't know why this specific movie, like just attacked me in that way. I don't even think I was cognizant of its night photography and the way that it kind of portrayed night when yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I was trying to remember that too, because I also saw this in theaters, and I guess I, I must have known that it looked distinctive, but, I mean, it, it's played to me like a normal movie. Mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't get the digital thing, really. But can we, like, watching it today, like, the digital stuff just pops so oh. much because no movie looks like that. now. Like, it feels like you're trapped in night with these people. Man, it's so beautiful. I mean, I think one of the appeals of digital photography for man is the way that it captures night. You can, through his eyes, shoot more expressively in night. And in this movie, like, the reflection of the lights on the cab windows, just, like, the traffic Traffic lights, mm. the, the building lights, as well as like the movie's visual palette is like black and teal and then these incidental splashes of bright white, you know? As someone who's worked a lot with Sony cameras, I see all of that Sony color science in like the way that Tom Cruise's has like yellow around his eyes because of the way that like the digital captures human faces. The two of them in the cab where it's, I mean, the lighting is so incredible. Like their, their faces are sort of lit very quietly, for want of a better word, with just this kind of like neonish teal well i get the sense that man is using a lot of just practical lighting on a lot of these you know set pieces and scenes if you haven't seen collateral the plot is jamie fox is a cab driver who gets stopped by tom cruise in gray hair that was one of the appeals that it was like tom cruise as a villain mm, i think tom cruise is great in this movie yeah, too he rocks i want i'd love this tom, I cruise, want this back. tom cruise to come back yeah. yeah what happened yeah and tom cruise reveals to jamie fox hey i'm an assassin you're gonna take me to all these places i have to go and I'm going to assassinate people, and we're just going to keep going. While this is happening, Mark Ruffalo is also kind of figuring it out. I remember when I saw the movie, at the time, I was like, cut all these Mark Ruffalo scenes out. But I love what man does with that, is that like, oh, someone, you know, they're coming closer. Is help on the way? And then how it just kind of ends is like, ah, oh, mm, perfect. And you also need those breathers in between being trapped with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx, then cutting away to something else. And the movie works just as a great two-hander between these two characters. I mean, the Jamie Foxx character has this really, you know, clean an effective arc that he goes mm -hmm. through. The first time I saw it in theaters, I thought the action stuff at the end was a little much with like Tom Cruise as the Terminator. But I don't oh, know. I love it. Works for me now. It suddenly turns into Rear Window where yeah. he's like, no, go away, go yeah, away. Yeah, I don't know. I love it now. I don't have no problem with this movie anymore. No, yeah. I, I think just watching it now, especially knowing the way that it was made, it's like, oh man, you know, he's using digital in a way that is not offensive to a viewer in the sense that like he's not challenging what you would expect from these kind of films. Like it looks a little off, but maybe because it was printed on film when we would have seen because we wouldn't have seen it projected digitally at the time. No, no. So maybe it, it wasn't cognizant to us or the way that he does a really smart trick of all the beginning is shot on film. And then when night falls, it turns to digital. And then there's one scene in the jazz club that's also shot on film. But other than that, I believe it's almost all digital. And I think just a lot that goes a long way about 
telling a very traditional story, mm-hmm. which is not what Miami Vice has. No, so Miami Vice, oh man, I was excited to see Miami 2006. Vice. 2006, you saw this in a theater? Oh, I did mm. indeed. I was at my stepmother's parents' farm. We went to the theater, we watched it. I must have liked it because I bought it on DVD when it came out on like at Roger's video. Did you listen to the commentary? I did. Man is, you know, not what I expect from commentaries. Okay. Kind of rambling, mostly talks about like the realism and historical context and what he's taking from when it comes to making these movies. And I had no idea the very troubled production that this film had. So what happened? Jamie Foxx walked off the set, apparently. Yeah. Did so, he ever come back? No. The okay. story goes, Michael Mann on this film, which cost $150 million, was very, very indecisive about making it. I don't know if... Collateral wasn't a huge success, but I think it did make a lot it of made money over on 100, DVD. 100 million. Yes, yeah. and it was very well known. And Miami Vice, especially he's returning to a property that he kind of made his name, even though I should say he did not create Miami Vice. He was just an executive, the showrunner on the show. Mm -hmm. And so like this film from stories, I've read like some oral histories where he like people on set would say like, oh, he would book like four locations for a day. And he'd be like, oh, whichever one I feel like going to is the one that I'm going to go to. It's all about vibes with him. I love it. I mean, the story that I always heard, not really looking into this too closely, was that Jamie Foxx had just won the Oscar. Yeah, for Ray. He was a diva. Ah, Ray, the movie we know and love, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. Huge diva on the set and I don't know, wanted more screen time or something and walked off. Yeah. So Jamie Foxx was a huge problem on the set. Like he wouldn't do certain things he'd be like i'll give you two takes then i'm good and another thing is that man like when they go to locations in the film man's all about realism and he's like i want to go to the most dangerous places that we can possibly shoot and that there was an incident someone came up to some guards that were you know patrolling the shooting location gunfire was shared no one died but after that happened jamie fox is like I'm not coming back to this movie. Like, we're done here. Jamie Foxx also demanded more money than Colin Farrell. And Colin Farrell went, yeah, you just take it out of my salary. Like, it doesn't matter. I should also point out, Colin Farrell was blasted out of his mind during the shoot. He checked into rehab right after, Yeah, he says he does not remember shooting Miami Vice. That's how bad it was. Oh, wow. Well, he he made a good movie, in my opinion. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about this movie. A movie that is loved by many obsessive fans. Well, there's an early episode of this very podcast, I think. I don't know which one, but I think you can hear us razzing on this movie. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in the past, where I think I said something like, God, this movie only looks good like 5% of the time. Mm. And all I can tell you is I come back on this podcast a healed man yeah not only on your knees not only looking for forgiveness yeah, not only do i love this movie now i actually think this might be my favorite michael mann movie even more than heat i wish i could see what will saw in this film okay, okay. i think this movie it, i like it i like it more oh, god i wish i could go back to like young justin and be like did you like this when you saw in theaters because i don't think any of the stuff that i like about it now i would have liked back then but it's such a mess and it's a mess that it feels like I didn't know this stuff until after I finished watching the movie and I looked into it and I went, oh, this makes sense. Well, the plot is, yeah. The, the, <laughs> All right, let me what? sit back and let me explain it to me. Okay, I'll, I'll do it as minimally as possible. You see, you've got your Crockett and mm-hmm. you've got your tubs. Yeah. Did that, you ever watch the Miami Vice TV I've show? not seen a single second of it. Was never in syndication when we were younger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you got, yeah, Crockett and Tubbs. They're, in, they're on the trail of a Cuban drugs and arms trafficker. The boys go undercover as gangsters. 
Crockett, that's Colin Farrell, who, by the way, makes much more of an impact in this movie than Jamie Foxx do- does. Jamie Foxx looks like he's there. He, he's fine. He's fine. Yeah. But Colin Farrell looks so haunted and he's, sad. He's so good in this Probably movie. because he's trying to remember what his line is, or as he said, how he can hit his mark, because he had difficulties doing that. Well, listen, whatever it took to get that performance on screen, it's that kind of like terse cold exterior well, with, with eyes that convey that oceans. performance is 80 percent hair because his hair in this movie Very is good. wild but anyway he gets into an affair with the trafficker's wife played by gong lee they fall in love but in typical man style it's a doomed romance there are many twists and turns and double crosses it's a globe trotting you know central american adventure but the whole thing and i think what makes this work for me what makes the tangling plot not only kind of not matter, but also work, is that it's a big treadmill to nowhere. Like, this, there is no escape from this. Mm-hmm. There's never a feeling. I mean, there are moments that are, like, exciting. Some of the action in this movie is incredible. But You're going to have to wait about 90 minutes for yeah, that, though. <laughs> but there's never... And, and, like, yeah, the guys are good at their jobs. There are lots of scenes of them talking to Ke- Kieran Hines. There's a lot of scenes, though, that I was watching, and I'm going, what is their goal here? Like, I'm not quite sure. Man, you got it. I love that. It's like, it's a big <laughs> treadmill to nowhere, this yeah. movie. And it all hits home for me in the scenes between, yeah, both Colin Farrell and Gong Lee, as well as Jamie Foxx and his girlfriend. Like, it's this movie of, like, so much babble and jargon and betrayals and double crosses and having official men talk then you got these romances that are sort of like very like pungently sexual the movie is sort of sexy in a way that big blockbusters almost never are i find like colin farrell's kind of lost in this movie i mean he does like look like they're talking to one of those actors doing a a, a bananas texas accent mm. why i can't do it but you know which actor i'm talking well i don't know yeah, what his yeah, name yeah. is oh it, eddie marson <laughs> yeah, the british te- character actor <laughs> I, I actually i didn't believe my eyes at first that it was him <laughs> i had to look that up <laughs> and like colin farrell like achingly like looks off into the distance and you see like the the water oh, crashing I, I i love it i love it and i mean the look of the movie you know i wish it was uglier uh, that's interesting because i mean all the different ways the sky looks yes you know that's what those digital cameras can capture like the information you know to 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 my naked eye it's just a black sky but the camera reveals there's red there's orange there's gray there are clouds up there that you're not seeing i i find that this movie like there's almost a lack of color in in it and i think that man i I couldn't find it's almost black and white yeah an exact interview but he wanted to make it the antithesis of the tv show Mm. in the sense of like that's all about neon and color there's like none of that in this i mean there's there is some neon in this movie yeah, that's they're, very they're in miami kind so. of strategically deployed but yeah for the most part the colors that are in there it's like i don't know if the tv show and i'm just assuming because i haven't ever seen it but if like the tv show is like a cake this is like you know uh, a whiskey or a scone yeah, a really a whiskey good whi- right after you know as, as you slowly start to drift to sleep yeah you're not quite sure what's going on and i mean the soundscapes are as important in these movies too well like, one so- of the things about michael mann you know this right i think i told you this last time we talked about him that he is almost deaf so like some of the dialogue is very difficult to hear in oh his yeah movies. especially black hat and the sound editors have said it really depends on how his hearing's doing on the day oh, like man. and he doesn't want to post dub either he, he only wants to use on-set sound wow nolan's like that too. yeah which yeah. is why i remember sitting in the theater and watching his next follow-up movie public enemies and being like 
this sound is so bad. Like when pe- characters talk, this all kind of gives me permission to not care too much about every little specific of the mm. plot. And I mean, the use of music in this movie. I know the people. Oh have, my god! So people have made fun of like the Chris Cornell and the like that Phil Collins cover and stuff. Dad rock. I don't know. L- listen, fuck it. I'm I'm even going to bat for this because I love this stuff. Now, I love the ambient. Does it just mood. remind you of a specific place and time where this music was like unavoidable? Actually, no. I mean, this music really. This music means nothing to me. Like, I like Limp Biscuit. I'm like, everybody would listen to that at the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, n- not a single one of these songs means anything to mm. me, but I just think the way, like, the way that he uses music, if not the specific music, as this kind of, like, droning, ambient mood setter, rather than something that directly comments on the action, mm. I-, I find that very powerful. Yeah, and I think that's something that he always did in all of his previous mm. work as well. Think of, like, the final gunfight in Manhunter, mm-hmm. but here, it's just, I think people kind of, like, bounce off of it because it's like it's not cool like this is and not it what should be cool yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it's like man is cool right but that's what people love about it i mean all work for me what can i say i wish you liked it more so public enemies is a movie i did not like oh, when i saw in theater yeah same hated it i was watching this movie in theaters like squinting being like has he lost his mind this now, looks awful watching this again and i came to this almost like arms crossed we talked about like ah, maybe the novelty of it being shot on digital video like that, that that'll you know be enough to get me through this i love this movie i was shocked yeah of practically all the movies I've ever seen, I've never had as much an about face as with this one. <laughs> yeah. Like, like from the sheer amount I disliked it on first viewing, I think this movie looks great. I remember Johnny Depp being like bored with him in the movie, and I'm like, it's perfect for what he is. Oh no, totally. So have you noticed in these movies, like the acting style is another thing that changes in the late career. In the earlier movies, you know, you get like Al Pacino hamming it up in heat. You get performances like that. But in this one, Johnny Depp is rather inert. Yes. And And we're coming off of like Pirates of the Caribbean. We're like, we want to see like fun Johnny Depp. And also he's playing John Dillinger. Mm -hmm. So you think, oh, he'll be boisterous. He'll be charismatic. And, you know, who knows how much of this is intentional or not. But I think there's like an emptiness. But he also wants to be like a star in the movie. And that's like the point of it. Like Johnny Depp is a star. Yeah. It's all like posing and empty gestures. And like you get a sense in this movie of like this character just wants to be famous that's Mm -hmm. all he wants and this is a movie too while miami vice to me feels like a bunch of pages kind of like ripped up and thrown in the air this is more like you're reading something linearly but you're just getting like brief glimpses here or there and it's enough to give you kind of a dramatic backbone and then when you mix it again with the digital video which looks so good in this like this film is so colorful oh yeah and the way that he shoots like I think that people think that like, yo, he has tiny cameras making these movies because the wild angles that he gets. Like, I think of the scene where they're in the movie theater and they're like, like they're watching the newsreel and it's like, they could be sitting in the audience and there's a low angle on Johnny Mm. Depp and like the lights come up above him. So good. Or some of those scenes where they're in like the swanky clubs Mm -hmm. and the way that the light the, the particular shade of like yellow and orange that like the light and the wallpapers convey mixed with the sort of like browns of their costumes. I don't know how to convey the effect of that, but it's quite something. And in these late period Michael Mann films, I think I also struggled with like structurally. I don't know if he like overshot and he had like a seven hour movie. He then cut down to two hours and change. But like it's sometimes difficult to grasp. Like, is this character important? Uh, yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I was overjoyed this time to see get off the train <laughs> Stephen lang of avatar fame and don fry ultimate fighting championship you know star of a little movie called godzilla final wars and i was like is that him and then he's like 
Yeah, we're here. I'm like, that's his voice. He's talking. What's his line in Godzilla Final Wars? There are two things in this world you have to be afraid of. One of them's me. And the the other, Godzilla. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Doesn't really come across if you don't see him do it, but watch Godzilla Final Wars. And this is all like what Michael Mann loves is like all these background actors, right? Like there's a guy, he became a very famous stunt coordinator who's like in the background of Heat. He's like part of the team of the cops. He's the one who's in like Troy Hark's The Master mm-hmm. as the main villain. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know where Mann gets these guys, but he just loved just putting them in the back there. And every time, like Don Fry is not a main character, but there, he would suddenly get a close up of like shooting. I'm like, ah, yes. But yeah, watching this movie again, I could see why it didn't quite hit. Mm-hmm. Because, like, just as the visual style is sort of, like, off beautiful, mm. you know, like, the the storytelling, like, you don't feel yourself cheering along with Dillinger. Man really isn't really interested in the sort of socioeconomic factors that made him a superstar. I don't even think it conveys who John Dillinger is very well. Well, in fact, one is left to wonder, like, who is in there, if yeah. there is someone. Or even, like, what he's doing, because, like, I had watched some videos, read some articles before, and I had a more of a better idea going well, into this yeah, movie. Yeah, and watching again, I kept waiting for the moment where you'd be like, you'd get a sense of why he was a folk hero. You'd mm-hmm. get a sense of, like, in the Depression, you know, when people were economic anxiety, etc., this man was seen as a sort of, like, uh, kick-ass, like, yeah. anti-establishment Doesn't really guy. go beyond, like, he just wants to be famous. That's what he likes, like that press conference that he has when he's being arrested. And so there are scenes in the movie that are suspenseful and even exciting in a way, but it's never exhilarating. No. Has there ever been a film with louder gunshots in public and they're like, like push you back in the seat? There's one specific scene that's like a jump scare where it's like a wide of a town square and suddenly a cop is riddled with bullets and the gunshots, like I was listening on earphones, I was like, ah, God, so loud. Something that comes across in Dillinger is the sense of entitlement. I mean, in the first half he's he's very like haha you know no one will catch me i mean there's a really funny scene where he's like no one's fast enough to catch us and then the next scene he gets caught and then from that point on it's just like a down you know and there's that gunfight in the streets where he gets shot and there's a sense being conveyed of like fuck i'm faster like this isn't fair this isn't in the rules maybe that's what i reacted to the first time which is i went like well oh this back half is like such a downer yeah and man even goes like oh but don't worry folks there's gonna be a big train heist that we keep building up throughout the movie that'll be the big nap that's not what happened and then christian bale is purvis i love him he's great the fbi stuff though like you know he's an asshole too there's like torture the classic thing no one to root for and which is fine again that like just seeing it through these digital cameras. And I remember seeing the trailer and being like, ugh, this looks terrible. But now, I'm like, ugh, I wish I, stuff well, like Well, again, this. I remember being in my seat on opening night saying, ugh, this looks terrible. But, I mean, I can also say the thing that everyone says about this movie, which is that the digital photography makes it look immediate and not mm-hmm. burnished in a way that most period movies because do. you're not used to seeing it this way yeah and i think that because man also goes into it with a lot of intent and a lot of immediacy it creates an effect that no other movie like this can have because no movie's gonna look like this like i watch film shot on different digital that look like shit and that's just because they're like directed badly they're mm-hmm. edited badly but when you have like stars in front of the camera, you have almost like these cameras are catching these moments in the act mm-hmm. in an impossibility. That's why it's as I find it as impactful as I did when I watched it just a couple days ago. So Black Hat 2015, mm-hmm. his career Waterloo. Yeah, so Black Hat, the last to this recording released feature film that he's made. He's okay. got one more coming out. 
Yeah, and I'm excited to see what he does with that. But Black Hat, this was shot on the Airy Alexa camera, which was industry standard. Yes. So, so he's same not playing with like Sony cameras. It's here. the same camera everyone else was using. So why does it look like this? Because he's pushing the ISO higher than it can. He's also going into situations where he's not using, you know, natural light because he wants that realism. Mm -hmm. He's making it go as far as he can make it go. But it does look, I feel, more like a movie than any of them have since Collateral, of course. Although in certain ways, it's a culmination of something. It's a culmination of certain tendencies, certain, let's say, arty tendencies in his film. That's such a stupid way to phrase it, but whatever. <laughs> like, the plot is harder to follow than ever. Which I, version did you watch? I watched the approximation of the director's, director's cut, cut yeah. that I think uh, Ryan Swen edited. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Arrow Video is going to put out a Blu-ray with the director's mm -hmm. cut, but that's not available as of this recording. Yeah. And Ryan, he edited together yeah. because it played on FX. Right. And so it was in standard definition, and he used the sources, moved scenes around. Did a great job. Looks pretty mm -hmm. seamless to me. One of the biggest changes is that, like, the film had a different structure, where it opened with a bang mm -hmm. as opposed to in the director's cut it builds to like a bang at the end of the first act i think mm -hmm. or the second act and then you know man said that he just made that choice at the last minute it's like ah no i made a mistake mm -hmm. and i went back to go fix it but yeah the digital photography is it's certainly brighter and maybe even sharper than something like yeah miami vice but only because there are so many lights on like every scene is either neon or fluorescent mm -hmm. you know the photography i think underscores you know, if you're thinking about form and content, how this is a world overwhelmed by technology, you know, so many screens, so many, you know, neon lights. What's fascinating about it from a visual standpoint is that it's the opposite of Miami Vice, which is a mostly gray and under white light. Mm -hmm. Well, this one, because the cameras can record so much visual information, you just need kind of like bright light shining on stuff to get just beautiful looking visuals. My issue with this film is I don't find it very exciting or engaging. So I agree with you. I agree it's not very exciting. Yes. And because it's dressed in the clothes of something exciting, mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, here we go. I mean, I don't love it as much as Miami Vice, but I think it works for me in a similar way mm -hmm. where, again, it's very much... It's very much about the tone. It's very much about the mood. Yeah, I think if it was more experimental, I would like it like okay. closer to Miami Vice. I would like it more than it presenting me with something and then going, ah, that's not really what we're giving you. I think, yeah, the, the sort of existential horror of this movie, there I go, using the word mm -hmm. existential, of like, yeah, you've got these sort of sketchily defined characters who are very good at their jobs, but like they're outrunning, they're trying to outrun something that can never be outrun. Like the, the villain, I mean, there is a big bad in this movie, but the villain is all around them. The villain is around all of us. We're all just cogs in this huge machine. There are no nation states anymore. It's just Michael Mann, you know, illustrates this by having the camera zoom into the computers. That was a all little that information. To... I like that. That's fun. <laughs> you know, yeah. throwback to the old Fast and the Furious yeah. days. How'd you like the centerpiece action scene, though? The big shootout? Oh, I like it. I thought yeah, it was yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. But that's the big centerpiece. And I think there's an hour left of the movie. This yeah. is a movie as well. It like winds down. Yeah. Like by the end, like I think they're like it's just two people and they're doing something and that's you know look I want to like this movie more than I do mm -hmm. and I am sure I will return to it when the Arrow Blu-ray comes out and it's like alright now let's let's get into this can't wait maybe I can you know approach it on the terms that Michael Mann I guess was attempting because when you hear him talk you're not you're never quite sure like what is your intent but that doesn't really matter if you can connect with the movie and the way that it's presented I mean I honestly found watching all four of these movies just like really invigorating I so time to give good old Stevie Soderbergh and a digital filmography another shot right well well actually i mean steven soderbergh 
Spielberg is in that category of like directors, you know, Jean-Luc Godard is one, Spike Lee is another, you know, directors who use digital for the imperfections, mm -hmm. you know, not not or the perceived imperfections yeah not, not trying not to emulate a, the look of phil yeah yeah and as for michael mann i mean black hat was such a flop i'm curious you know ferrari is coming out this fall season and adam driver in the main role too so you know you got you, you got your anchor there well i'm just very interested like does he continue along these lines or does he, or make, does he try to make it look like a normal movie yeah and where do you go from here i don't know well i, I guess only time will tell like if you look at soderbergh's like his newest tv show full circle he's still pushing that digital like his kind of ethos has always been don't try to make it look like something it can't be because mm -hmm. if you do that you create a cognitive dissonance in the audience make it look like smeary or like all over the place and that's how you you'll create the emotions that you're looking for i will just say about soderbergh i do like a lot of his digital stuff there are ones that are literally painful for me to look oh, at. I love it. I'm Which I don't say as judgment. I say as in like when I watch High Flying Bird, my eyes start watering. Really? Literally. Oh, I love it. So much visual information. I like and when, I, re I respect it. When I watched Miami Vice, I was like, oh, I wish this was uglier. Like there was a whole movie looked like that shot that everybody talks about of them on the roof, like on the oh, phone. Where best it's like, shot of the movie. They're basically God just grain on screen oh, because there's no like lights around them. Frame it. Put it in a museum. I wonder if people listening to this like will go to these movies again going all right so we want it to not look like the way we expect it like how do i get on this wavelength and trust your instincts yeah it's, it's tough to like teach something like that like that you have a kind of you know a, an aesthetic like for this kind of stuff i'm just saying look at the image mm. my advice is look at the image and say how can this be beautiful mm. what do you think the people like doing this they were not like blind like they knew what they were doing yeah what did they find in this kind of stuff and why did they put this on the screen? So, Justin, do we have any letters? Yes, we do. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Mark, and he goes, Good afternoon. As a longtime listener, I greatly enjoyed your episode on Richard Pryor. Your discussion regarding Silver Streak was interesting because it does fit the idea of forgot buster. Forgot buster. I think that's a Nathan Rabin term. Mm, yes. I mean, we all have that book on our shelves, don't we? My year of flops. My yeah. year of flops. A movie whose residual popularity does not equate to its box office. Do you feel we live in an era of forgot busters where a lot of the big films now will be forgotten if not already are the jumanji films are perfect examples as they are films with no presence in the culture of discourse what is your opinion on this well i mean it's hard to tell i mean the jumanji movies definitely have no presence in my circles but no maybe they do for someone i saw it in theaters and i went this was fun i mean there and are, then i forgot them and never watched them again there are always and will always be kind of disposable blockbusters that everyone goes to see and are sort of ephemeral. That being said, I mean, everybody makes fun of those Netflix movies like Red Notice. I that, mean, we love Red Notice. The Gray Man? We love them. We're still talking about them today. Those movies that supposedly get watched by 70 billion people. Well, like, 70 billion minutes watched, to yeah. be specific. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And apparently everyone's seen them and nobody talks about them. I mean, those Netflix movies, though, I think just the act of having them as like, the fact that you don't go out and see them in a theater with an audience, the fact that, you know, people are going out to see the Barbie movie and making an event of it, and that makes it more real than something you that gives it that gives it like space and presence mm -hmm. and, and locates it in a time and place in a way that like something on streaming isn't. Yeah. Or even something like Jumanji. There's 
two, three? Uh, there's like two well, Jumanji count, Rock movies. the Robin Williams. <laughs> yes. I mean, they're all part of the same universe. That's right. I can't wait for Zathura. the next. Yeah, the next one, CGI Robin Williams will come out and be like, what year is this? Yeah. Oh, God. And then he says, let me die. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, the issue is as well that we live in a time where there's so much information being thrown at us at all times. I mean, everybody knows this. Is that like, it's so ephemeral. And, you know, Silver Street comes out. You look at the movies. You're like, that's all we got. Like, I'm either going to like this or I like nothing. So, well, and also with comedies like, like Stir Crazy is, you know, those are comedies more than most genres uh, are reliant on what are people thinking about? What are people anxious about at that particular moment? And therefore are tend to be ephemeral mm. although i don't know when mo hits curly with a hammer that's i mean that that is gold right? eternal listen there's comedy as we said in last week's patreon episode about shanghai nights there's only 10 jokes that's right and you just keep going back to the well and try to do the best version of that joke but i don't know if we're in the era for got busters maybe we are maybe we're not i do know that some things are for the moment some things last many things change i mean i don't know showgirls is like probably more, more popular than it ever has been and yeah. more popular than probably like, I don't know what else came out that year quiz show. <laughs> Who's watching. <laughs> We're that? all watching Robert Redford's quiz show. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Robert Redford directorial episode coming. Oh out. my God. I, I would kill myself before we're going to do it. Okay. <laughs> he did ordinary people. That's a good movie. That's a good movie. Yeah. And watch any of those lines for lambs. I watch quiz show like on VHS. That's I probably think, one of the better ones, right? I feel like it was a double VHS tape from my recollection. It's like, can't wait for part two of quiz show. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so our next letter is from Mia and she goes, Hey, Justin and Will. Thanks I can't for the- believe it. A female letter writer. <laughs> Thanks for the wonderful podcast. I'm a 25 year old community college film student writing from Tucson, Arizona, where I work as a projectionist at our local art house and wanted to share my experience. As of this year, I began training on both 35 millimeter and 70 millimeter. My first print being Chaplin city lights. Wow. Very nice. Which was a beautiful and unforgettable experience for me. I just listened to your most recent Patreon episode and wanted to share my theater's time with Oppenheimer. I'm actually typing this while running the print now. And oh, I think, no. I think we were talking about how some of the Oppenheimer screenings in because, Toronto, because we don't have a lot of trained professionals anymore who know how to operate film projectors. There, there were some mishaps or no projectionists at the theater while it was happening at my theater, as opposed to a platter, we have dual projector changeover system. For those who don't know, this means we load up the reels and threads, then change over to the next real projector, rewind the previous and repeat given how long the film is. Wow. They have dual 70 millimeter projectors. I don't, I've never even heard of that before. Cause usually they are plattered. Like if you look in the window of like the varsity in Toronto, you will see it down and it's one big reel that's rolling. The first week was a bit wild, but then she mentions given how long the film is and how heavy the reels are, it's been a grueling yet immensely rewarding experience. The first week was a bit wild as every showing was selling out at 370 seats for days straight. Isn't it funny that like the story we've all heard about Oppenheimer is that like people want to see it in IMAX on film and everything keeps selling out. Yeah. The studio's like, how could for we weeks. Yeah, known this was gonna happen. Well, th- thank God they got out of there and they have Blue Beetle in now. <laughs> and IMAX, right? now luckily our theater only had one projection hiccup but we've been going on strong additionally we are an all femme projection squad and we all feel so proud to have a skill so few have these days i mean that's great the yeah. like projectionist i'm curious at like when i was first getting into like working at movie theaters in toronto it was like union projectionists that's do they right. still exist in toronto clearly not at cineplexes yeah i wonder like yeah do the rep theaters have union projectionists i'm not sure no i don't i don't think so. somebody right i remember in. it was very strict what they could or could not do 
like they could like if they went over a certain time you know like any you know union like you couldn't do like an all-night thing because they would go into like double overtime etc etc and like we could not use a projection booth ourselves because we were like a union house mm -hmm. and that was the Blore cinema while i was working there at the time the projectionist was very nice i wonder if he's still doing that stuff he was like one of those grumpy projectionists who's been doing it for like 30 years but he's got a heart of gold if uh, you know what i mean love it but uh, i love this new squad of like young 25 year old yeah. projectionists that's cool and the letter continues, and of course, I want to throw in a couple suggestions for future episodes. I was wondering if you guys are familiar with the work of Josephine Decker. I truly think she's one of the greatest contemporary filmmakers of our time, as her work covers a vast range of ideas. Are you familiar with her, Will? I saw Madeline's Madeline mm -hmm. when it was new. I did not see the subsequent Shirley. Yeah, and she has a pretty large filmography, too, and I don't think I've seen any of these movies. Letter continues, additionally, please do more female filmmakers. Some other fun possibilities are Susan Pitt and Cecilia Condit. Well, yeah, Cecilia Condit, I actually just got a VHS of, like, her short films that Lunch Meat put out. You know, that great zine, Lunch Meat? Yes, because she did the one, it's the name of a place... And like, it's a weird kind of like, isn't it like mannequins and stuff like that? And I know this because I sent her an email right when Gold Ninja Video was starting saying, hey, could I put your shorts out on Blu-ray? Because like, I don't think there's been any physical media. She replied, I think six, six months later, very politely saying, nah, I'm not really interested in that. So, well, there's a VHS. That, yeah, from that Lunch They got it. But yeah, I would love to. I haven't watched it yet. I would love to do Cecilia Conda. And Susan... Pitt is a filmmaker I've never heard of who does like really out there animation. She recently passed away in 2019 at the age of 75. Well, we try to do female filmmakers, but obviously we could tr be trying harder. And it's good to know that there are so many, so many beyond just the obvious, like Agnes Varda, Chantal Ackerman. We've done you them. Know. We can't we, do them again. We've done them. Yeah. Chantal Ackerman, volume two. Here we go. Yeah. And for the love of God, please do an episode on Jacques Demy. Are you a Jacques Demy fan? I like Jacques Demy. Love Jacques yeah, Demy. He's yeah. the best. Yeah, we Speaking should. Of we should. Yeah, we should do him. The world needs it. Thanks for everything. Sincerely, Mia. And she also says, "P.S. If you, for whatever reason, ever find yourself in Tucson, the theater would love to have you guys." Hey, man. You know, if you bring us down, we'll, yeah, we'll do a screening. Fly us out. We'll do a live show. Fun. Tucson, Arizona. I'd love to. I'd love to. Speaking of live, I wish shows, it was driving distance. Yeah, we just did a screening of Glenn or Glenda. So thanks to everybody that came out to that. Oh yeah, thanks so much. We had a great time. And on our Patreon episode this week, mm -hmm. we will be talking about returning to the subject of quote bad movies mm -hmm. unquote. We'll be talking about Glenn or Glenda, reflecting on the screening we did and some of what we've learned from watching it with a modern audience, as well as talking about Mr. Neil Breen. Yes, he had a new movie. I have not seen it, but I, I can saw speak it. of it. And it mostly speaking about like what is a bad movie and how is it interpreted in today's, you know, modern age? That's right. And we'll talk about the history. Have we done an episode like that? I feel like we've touched upon Very it. early on in the podcast, you might remember we did an episode where we talked about The Room, Birdemic, and yes. another one. I can't well, remember. Well, we're going back to the topic. I think there's still more stuff to be said. I'd also like to thank that I know a listener out there named Frog told their friend, you got to go to this screening. Oh. And she had no idea what the movie was. She didn't even know who we were, but she showed up and she came to the table. We talked with her. What a great ICC listener, like telling your friend, you got to go to the screening. And Th then yeah. with enough authority that the friend went on their own. Thank you, Frog. And that means all of the rest of you need to be apostles as well. <laughs> we're probably going to have another screening at the Fox Theater in Toronto on October 3rd. I believe that's the date. Yep. We're not quite sure what it is yet. Probably something horror related because we're in Shocktober at that point. Yeah. But keep your eyes peel on our twitter and we will of course talk about it on the podcast as well once we lock down what that is so what are we doing next week will we are returning 
to the latest in an ongoing series, Big Screen Comedian Failures. Yes! Yes! We are doing... Oh, I had a very specific subtitle for this one. That's right. So in previous ones, we've talked about, you know, we talked about Tom Green. Yeah, we, we did like about... the first one was just like, yeah, whoever. Then we did one that was about Canadians. We did one that was about SNL alumni. Yes. And now talk show hosts oh yeah is there anything better than talk show hosts that are a star of a comedy film so we're going to be talking about mr jay leno in Co collision oh, course hell yes collision course have you seen i've never seen it i have seen collision course <laughs> not know. lately yeah all right so all those laughs will be new to you yeah i barely remember it jimmy fallon okay which one do we do taxi or fever pitch taxi taxi okay so him and queen latifah you know laughing it up in a remake of a luc Besson produced french film steve allen yes i don't remember what the title is but I mean, we're not that familiar with Steve Allen, so it's tougher to speak to his talk show persona and how it translates to the screen. And I know that Johnny Carson was in at least one movie. But did he star in the movie? That's the question. I think it's more of a guest appearance. I if don't know. people have any other thing they would like to suggest, that could maybe knock one of the ones that we mentioned. Not Collision Course, though. We're watching Collision Course. James Corden is a bit of a question mark. Uh, he's basically a movie actor, Yeah, though, he's right? basically a movie actor. Craig Ferguson, is he basically a movie actor? Yeah, he's basically a movie actor, too. I mean, I bet you, mm, is there a good Craig Ferguson? Ferguson movie out there that we can watch. I I have a couple of ideas. Okay. Maybe we'll talk about them. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to be doing next week. So until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. As per usual, I'd like to thank some of the new people who recently joined our Patreon, who include Jameson, Donovan Luz, Luke, Florian Weigel, Alex Velasco, Alex Lines, Chris Moberly, Guy Nelson, Jeff Chanley, Dominic Labuglio, and Simon. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Well, the writers and actors strike is still ongoing, has brought Hollywood to its knees. Yep, it has. And not really, because no one wants to go to the bargaining table. Like, I'm fascinated by this because like... We're on the side of the writers and the actors, by the way, of course. in case that's not clear. <laughs> oh my God, yes. yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean Bob Iger doing an interview like at his like billionaire summer camp going, their demands are just unreasonable. I mean, I'm not really a fan of any actors or writers, but I do love David Zasloff. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's my favorite creator. Do you remember when the writers went on strike the last time? Yeah, like, 2008. I remember when all the talk show hosts went off the air. Like, what was the public's reaction? Was it like, ah, those stuffy shirted writers, just get back to work? I think there was a little bit of that, honestly. Because I remember when they, like, made the deal and went back, most of the writers were like, this is not a very good deal. Like, we just kind of buckled and had to accept something so we could get back to work. Mm -hmm. But, like, in this particular strike... Like the, the demands are so clear and they're so angry and so destroying to the industry. Well, yeah, the existential threat. Yeah. You know, AI, it's really scary. Well, with the actors in particular, too, I think, because the idea that like somebody can come in, they basically photograph their face and then they can use that face in perpetuity. They own that face. They can create, you know, a, a digital version of you and then not pay you. Awful. And the fact that it hollows out the whole like there was a thriving middle class where if you were a consistent character actor, yeah, you could get work. You when you were but if you were in like, you know, a couple episodes of Friends, a couple episodes of Law and Order, you get 
you know, the first check is. Well, you're talking about residuals. Yeah, now. yeah, that's you, different. Well, well, yeah, but but now they're cutting all that out. They're yeah, cutting yeah. all that out because if they use you once, then they can use you a million times and not pay you for but that. The other thing about residuals too is that like they don't exist anymore yeah. unless you're working on network television right. because the streaming services. I mean, ah, uh, I'm just licking my lips. We're basically at like you know an antitrust kind of like breaking point. Well, yeah, because yeah. like Netflix creates its own content, hosted it on its own platform. Isn't it wild that they're like, we don't give any of the information out. It's like, that is clearly illegal. Well, and now, I mean, I, I hate to talk about like the people on the top of the food chain, like the really famous people, but like if they're not making residuals, mm -hmm. then nobody else is. Nobody else Because, is. you know, people who are starring on like Orange is the New Black, which I guess was supposedly the most popular Netflix show ever. The famous people on that show are making like, what, 12 cents? Nothing. Like yeah. somebody got like a year's worth of residuals and it was like a couple of dollars. Yeah. And that's like literally something that just pulling out of their ass it's you know it's like capitalism right that you can push it to a certain extreme where it's like people accept this people accept this until you're like oh fuck we went too far well i hope, I hope that's true of capitalism well okay that's not 100 percent true but then they you know they make a few fixes and then we go back into capitalism and it keeps accelerating well i mean you don't get anything without struggle no absolutely um, i mean if you look at the writer's strike that went on before the last one was for streaming kind of things and that well, didn't really a lot, work out a lot of a lot of what it was last time was fighting over royalties and residuals for the internet yes and oh, which the at South the time Park boys came around and <laughs> that's, said that's right and said you know you're dumb there's no internet money and you know what happened after they released that episode they turned around and sold like tens of millions yeah. of dollars to put South Park on the internet. Yeah, of course. Those those fuckers. <laughs> yeah. Those guys have like the wrong Fuck opinions. Fuck those guys, every, honestly. Every time. Yeah. But yeah, and, the, and another thing too with the writers is that like they've created this kind of mechanism where they don't want dedicated rooms of people working on stuff anymore. Right. And that's a big issue because as people have pointed out, no one is trained because the idea is that like, oh, if you get, you know, one person writing this, one person writing that, you know, and then you can fire them and then they're not like a big, you know, important part of the machine. We can just replace them. Just a little part we can replace. The problem with that is no one learns how to do anything because no one can work their way up the food chain or be an assistant and get another position because there's no interconnectedness there. Like one of the things is that like we want like a minimum of like six to 12 people in a writer's room. That's nothing for shows that cost millions of dollars. By the way, did you see the AV Club is running AI generated articles I have not now? looked at the AV Club. So oh, no. when it, the AV shit. Club got to read like just absolute garbage i was so trained in my mind to like check the av club i was like oh it was a daily check for me that yeah. i had to write like get a program that would just put me to another website <laughs> so then i just stopped i think it was coming soon.net and i just stopped putting av club because i don't want to read coming soon.net <laughs> so that's not very quickly that way but yeah they're running ai content now i mean they're nothing like what they do is they scrape every movie ever made and they make a page for it so if you search for a film the av club will come up and it will have no information it's so on. annoying fuck that <laughs> make it illegal if i could block the av club mm -hmm. i would yeah just from the I internet mean, it, it, it is just like just ashes up it's nothing yeah. <laughs> like i hope it just goes away forever because it's just garbage yeah but yeah so writer's strike like I, I i watch it and i go like who will buckle like someone ha like something has to happen at some point and i'm fascinated to know like the streamers do not want to reveal how many people watch their show probably because if they reveal it they will lose all value in their it'll company. show how overinflated those numbers are yeah yeah and they're in so much debt like they cannot take that on so like they can't move it, like it's it's so fucked up that the model of these streaming services was to keep incurring 
hundreds of millions of dollars of debt every year. But if you keep the number of subscribers going up, that it creates feels like growth. It yeah. creates the sense of growth, which means that profit may one day that, come. That's what that's what capitalism is. It's like gross. Well, especially especially now. I mean, what am I saying? Especially now, all time. Yeah. Gross, gross, gross. You got to keep growing. If you have your annual or I don't know quarterly business call and you don't show growth, then you're failing. And, and then if, in one month, when Disney Plus loses subscribers, it's it like all, oh, we lost three billion dollars worth of our value. Yeah. It's like what the fuck are you talking about do you know how big disney is like yeah. who is seeing that and going i gotta sell all my stock now like oh my god i gotta get out of here anyway i think we gotta get back to the the old ways where you block know, booking in theaters yeah 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 you, <laughs> Ew, no that means that disney owns the theaters uh you you make a movie and then you try to make a profit on the movie that'd be cool yeah but no 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 all that it's important now is that how much money that it makes at the box office because that you know defines the value in the company that made the movie whether it actually made a profit or not because no one knows any of the accounting because it's classic Hollywood account. So, okay, did you have like the Guinness Book of Records when you were a kid? Where, of like, course. And I'm flipping to see the, you know, weirdos in the book. <laughs> yeah, biggest brass, smallest yeah. penis, stuff like oh, that. Of course. But in the movie section, like every year, like, you know, b- biggest loss, it was Cutthroat Island, mm. which lost, I think, $100 million. And now a movie loses $100 million every week. That's nothing. Mission Impossible lost $100 million. It's nothing. And it, not even a blip. It's too big, though. Yeah. Like, we know what Mission Impossible is. It is not a gamble, yeah. it was part of a series. So, it doesn't really matter. It's part, say, it's part of Paramount's assets. Anytime yeah. we talk about the streaming stuff is like, there's no real money anywhere. Like it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, so like at the crazy. end of the day, just pay your fucking writers and your actors, yeah. give them the residuals. They will lose more money during the strike than if they had done this for the next like 50 years. Yeah. It's tragic. Well, you know what? At least David Zaslav and Bob, Iger, they're sticking to their guns. That's what's really important. Right? I think the proof is in the pudding. They make great movies <laughs> and those movies make money. Time to check out the gray man for my seventh time. <laughs> yeah.